0: Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to the Diplomatic History Channel here at New Books Network. We've been on a bit of a hiatus. Um, for the last several months, uh, but we are back with our latest episode here. Um, My name is Grant Golub, and I'm one of your diplomatic history hosts here at New Books Network, and I am delighted to welcome back to the show um, Christopher McKnight Nichols to talk about his new edited collection um, with David Milne, who is unfortunately not able to join us uh, for our conversation, Um, Ideology in U.S. Foreign Relations, a new histories. Um, and Chris uh, is the professor of history and the Wayne Woodrow Hayes Chair of National Security Studies at the Mershon Center for International Security Studies at the Ohio State University. He just started uh, in this position uh, in the summer of 2022. Um, Chris specializes in the history of the United States and its relationship to the rest of the world, uh, particularly in the areas of isolationism, internationalism, and globalization, as well as the roles of ideas and ideologies in U.S., Uh, Foreign Relations, which we're going to be talking a lot uh, about today on the podcast. He's the author of or editor of six books, uh, including the one that we'll be discussing, but also Rethinking American Grand Strategy, which he co-edited with Andrew Preston and Elizabeth Borghorty. And we talked um, with him a little over a year ago about that volume. Uh, with him and Andrew, and you guys can listen to that um, anytime here on New Books Network. And he's also the author of probably his most well-known work, uh, Promise and Peril, America at the Dawn of a Global Age. So Chris, uh, great to have you. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Grant. Thanks
1: for having me here. Thanks for the kind introduction, and I'm really looking forward to talking about the role of ideologies and ideas in US foreign relations, which clearly connects to the question of grand strategy. Yeah,
0: Definitely. Um, so let's let's just jump right in. And I'd like to talk about what the motivation um, for putting together uh, this volume was and, and what sort of your vision along with David's um, for this uh, for this book was when you guys um, started uh, putting together all of these fantastic chapters.
1: Well, yeah, it's a good place to start. So of the genesis of the volume, I think, uh, was the kind of thing that many folks listening um, will it will resonate with. Um, reading Michael Hunt's very famous book, um, "Ideology and U.S. Foreign Policy," uh, years ago in graduate school uh, got me thinking about the subject. Uh, even though I was at the time very interested in the role of ideas and ideologies in in the U.S.'s role in the world, um, but got me thinking about the subject and what was missing from that book. It's a fantastic work, probably a lot. Lots of listeners know it, um, but it very much smacks of a kind of late Cold War um, moment. It's, it's very much about justifying why we should think about ideology and especially at the kind of elite policymaker level. And so my thinking there is it slowly evolved over time as I studied ideas and ideologies and foreign relations and, and fantastic scholars like um, David Milne. Uh, my co-editor, who who has written books on Walt Rostow and world-making and the kind of world views and disciplinary perspectives that shape how policymakers and citizens alike, but he's mostly focused on on policymakers, um, shape how they view the world and the kinds of questions that they address and the ideologies they deploy um, in trying to come up with foreign policy strategies. In conversations with those sorts of folks, I realized that we really needed a kind of new synthetic work um, that brought together the foremost Many of the foremost people thinking about ideology and foreign relations, uh, but also broaden the base of who and what counts there. And this is something that's that's informed a lot of my work and other subjects as well. So you know we're looking at grassroots actors. There's a fantastic chapter we can get into this a little bit more later on. You know children and generational questions. Um, you know so there, there's a lot more to cover when you think about ideology and the kind of world views of individuals and groups um, that 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 are. Impacted in or, or implicated in um, foreign relations, and so the Hunt book was a stepping off point. Um, but but so much was the. The kind of cutting edge new directions in the field of the U.S. and the world where people have been looking a lot more at ideas and ideologies and don't need to quite justify a focus on ideas and ideologies in the way that they did in the era of Hunt or frankly in the way that they do in other fields like political science where there's more of a concern of you know, tracking that quantitatively what's the one-to-one relationship between say democracy promotion and policy outcomes. You know, Historians care a little bit less about that direct causal relationship and we're more interested in kind of the context and that's really the more important thing or the language the rhetoric right
0: right you know something that really i think struck me about um what you were just talking about with the with the hunt book um which was written you know at the very you know at the in the Last years of the Cold War, I think it was published in 1987, um, in which you were sort of talking about you historians of, of that period had to sort of justify talking about ideology more. Is that when you listen to a lot of political discourse, um, I think you know over the last you know couple of decades, let's say, or or even less, um, especially I think amongst um, you know certain quarters of the discourse, there's sort of a, a skepticism towards the idea of ideology as being a motivating factor, uh, not only in us foreign policy, but just in American politics in general. Um, and sort of, it's sort of seen as I think by some as a smokescreen for, um, other, other things that animate why people pursue certain policy objectives. And it usually relates to, um, at least in this sort of reading, economic forces, people's you know personal financial standing, you know it's more of a there's more it's more of a cynical take I think on ideology as not being sort of a legitimate underpinning of why people uh, do what they do politically or believe what they believe politically. And so I, I wanted to ask you about how you and and David and a lot of your co-authors sort of contended with um, sort of these more recent ideas about the role in ideology. Um, not only in American t- politics, but more specifically in American foreign policies, and that's what the volume is focusing on
1: Yeah, so I think first, I think your observation is exactly right. That's something we've maybe heard more of in recent years or heard at a higher kind of register or decibel level. Um, I, I'm not sure when you track the history uh, how different that is over time. I think you know when you look at policymakers and citizens alike, they've often eschewed a kind of um, ideological um, mantle. Uh, or have suggested that um that the the real values underlying a Policy that they hope to achieve, or that the, a position they hope the U.S. will have in the world, are shaped by other kinds of principles, or assumptions, or contexts. In other words, uh, if you look to some moments in the 19th century, questions about morality or, you know, Christian values uh, might have been what w- would have been championed in the political rhetoric, uh, alongside a kind of denial of any other ideology, say, you know, um, avaricious empire, for instance, or something like that. Um, but, you know that the, these are the tools of the historian. Um that, in fact, when we look to the historical record, when we look to political rhetoric, when we triangulate across letters and documents and debates, we can actually find, you know that that there are. Um, foreign policy ideas embedded in that public rhetoric um, and that, that they're sometimes you know just as salient as anything else going on there so you know I think one of the things that's interesting about this volume we, we decided to bring together you know senior scholars very well-known names and some junior people kind of rising star folks uh, was that we disagreed in some ways about you know what constituted ideology precisely or when where or how ideology made a big difference or didn't make a difference uh, but one of the Fundamental precepts here was that that there there is such a thing as ideology or ideologies, um, and that ideologies are important in the understanding um, historical understanding and analysis of foreign policy over time. Um, and I think we can get to the more present context for sure. But but you know as you go back, one of the things that the volume tries to do is start before the revolution and to think about you know how long it's been um, in U.S. history that that I, various kinds of ideologies have been evolving and developing um, to shape. Uh, how Americans um, and how uh, others perceive U.S. foreign relations and that, that there are some through lines there that we can discern as historians that, that might help us understand, you know, the, where we are in the world today, in fact, um, but certainly understand different kinds of pivotal moments in different ways by saying, OK, um, it doesn't matter that policymakers or citizens uh, want to reject a kind of ideological orientation. Can we find in the historical record ideas and ideologies at work?
0: Right, I mean, talking about one of those through lines, I think that's a that's a good segue into looking at your specific chapter in the book, um, which focuses on unilateralism, which I think is is a is an ideology or an underpinning of American foreign policy that goes, you know, that you can see all through American history. So, I wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of unpack your chapter. Um, thinking about unilater- unilateralism as a ideological underpinning of, of U.S. foreign policy. Um, how did you sort of approach this, especially um, when this is a, a topic um, I think from a lot of angles that has been written about quite a bit? But you have such a fresh take on it. I was curious to know, you know, how you were sort of thinking about this as you saw it over sort of the long durée of, of American foreign relations.
1: Yeah, so first, you know, there are a few historians and political scientists who have written about unilateralism, but there's been less sustained analysis than I would suspect. I was a little surprised to find that there haven't been many folks who've done much on unilateralism over time through U.S. history. Uh, And I think you're exactly right to emphasize, you know, the kind of enduring... Uh, positioning of unilateralism. One of the things that I say, you know, in the chapter is that it may be the longest-standing kind of default foreign policy ideology um, that the U.S. has, and it's one that the U.S. comes back to in very different contexts. Policymakers and citizens try to update. Um, you know, one of the the jumping-off point for the chapter is was my observation, which which will probably resonate with with listeners, um, is. And also connects with where you opened, which was the kind of transactional unilateralist orientation of the Trump administration, um, and that that a lot of the commentary on this as a supposed abrupt break from, you know, say, the World War II kind of consensus liberal international order um, of the U.S. being part of multinational. And multilateral coalitions collective security like nato and we could go on and on and make a long list um that this was some abrupt break and it was a shock and it was it was a deviation and people couldn't understand it right and so one of the things i sort of note there is that um unilateralism has often been brought up as a kind of to tar different foreign policies but also as something that's heralded uh and that when you go you know, much farther back, and you think about some of the benefits for policymakers in different moments about a unilateral impulse, or for citizens, um, it's it's a really clarifying one because it asks the most basic question of all, which is, you know, what are the vital interests of the U.S. and is this particular policy designed to advance them? Um, now, of course, uh, there are myriad answers to that question that's all, almost always, you know, vigorously, hotly debated, uh, but it gets you to a much more um, precise and easy kind of uh, logical position than say, clearly more complicated questions about multilateralism and collective security or uh, multinational trade deals, right? The sort of things that that both the Trump administration, but also, say, the Thomas Jefferson administration would have been wary of, right? That, 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 that this could pull the U.S. into kinds of configurations of nations and groups against the U.S.'s best interests. It could factor in ways uh, foreseen and unforeseen in, you know, harming domestic interests, right? So just to put it diplomatically and broadly, right? Now, we could we we could, you know, um, uh, shoot down some of those kinds of claims pretty rapidly. But as a way of configuring that policy, um, that seemed pretty important to me. Um, You know, the other thing I think well, what I try to do with the chapters, it's a sort of a think piece on unilateralism. Like, let's think together about what it meant, what the definition might be. Um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. And it was news to me when I was doing this research that um, multilateralism was coined first as a term and unilateralism came later. That's OK. Very salient.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Right? Yeah,
1: um, The kind of. Uh, Things that I've studied uh, related to isolationism, of course, factor in here. And I've been thinking about unilateralism as one of the key components of an isolationist framework um, for thinking through and revising the U.S.'s, quote unquote, proper role to the world. Um, So, you know, uh, I I think it's a, we often do a disservice by thinking that multilateralism today is the default. And I think it might be more useful to think that U.S. foreign relations sort of values often are grounded in unilateralism, and then you need to build up policymakers and citizens alike to a place where multilateral configurations make more sense. Now, that may sound more like IR or something along those lines or theory, but when you look to some of the historical moments where the U.S. has has made these kinds of moves, where the U.S. was really pursuing you know something along the lines of going it alone, um, you find in those particular moments, you know. Uh, political debates that that center on something that seems a lot like ideology, and that's the other question here, that there is something more to it than just an impulse, right? This visceral thing, this is why I started with the Trump administration, some visceral um, attitude <laughs> towards going it alone, that that's just plain good. Whereas in fact, lots of very smart folks you know, in lots of different uh, historical moments and political debates have argued for a kind of unilateral orientation. Um, in the sort of ism sense, in a more in a deeper political philosophical sense that really did try to think through many dimensions of what it might mean um, to go it alone, say in bilateral treaties and, and reciprocal uh, kinds of deals, uh, ad hoc alliances rather than more enduring ones. You know, it, it can be a lot more complicated than just some gut rejection of the world. In fact, um, many of the unilateral sorts of orientations of the US have been towards individual peoples and groups And you know, I'll just broaden out one more second, if if you'll uh, permit. Of course, Um, of course. Is that you know unilateralism isn't pacifist necessarily in the historical record of the present, and you know you can think about whether or not a unilateralist orientation would support, say, arming Ukraine um, in the present. Or why it did or didn't, say, uh, support um, revolutions in Hungary and in Greece uh, in, the, in the 1840s and 1850s you know, and other kinds of historical moments. So what did this deeper philosophical kind of position mean towards U.S. intervention, aid, humanitarian relief? and actual war making. Um, and, and that's a, a piece of this. And you might, you, you might then ask some really interesting questions about, you know, how unilateralism you know, as a political philosophy or as an ideology can morph and change in different political circumstances. And that's kind of what the historian in me is suggesting. Hey, as you think about this concept and set of ideas, when does it become ideology? When does it just function in some other form? It doesn't uh, matter.
0: It, a, a lot of things just struck me about your, your overview of your chapter, but uh, two things I wanted to sort of dissect a little bit more was this, you know, idea. You know, I think that if you were to listen, if someone were to wake up, um, you know, in the United States today and, and listen to people talking about foreign policy, um, you know, you would think that the United States. Uh, in in a lot of cases has always sort of been a country that's really invested in multilateralism, in, invested in you know what a lot of folks refer to as the rules based liberal international order. Setting aside whether that's something that actually uh, exists or not, but you know sort of that this post World War II uh, U.S. orientation on American or on, yeah, on American foreign relations, um, has really always what's animated, uh, us foreign policy. In other words, it's kind of been the default, but, you know, I think as you were sort of pointing out, right. It, it's, it's really not, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's really the opposite. Um, and, and that, and that's so interesting to me. I was curious to know, like unpacking that a little bit, why, you know, like why there has been this shift, um, away from, you know, sort of unilateralism being this sort of core um, ideology underpinning American foreign policy, right? Because unilateralism was seen as being the, the, you know, smart, imprudent way to approach the world, right? I mean, it was, you know, one of the things that underpinned, you know, George Washington's farewell address, right? You know, a, a avoiding foreign entanglements and, and, and sort of this idea of going it alone. But you see this big shift during World War II. And I mean, and, and, and now it's sort of, you would think that this has always been the bedrock. I mean, what's really animating that exactly in, in your view?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it might be worth rehearsing quickly some of those the, the data there, just so people are, are pretty aware, right? So you're thinking about Washington's farewell address, you know, but even before that model treaty with the world and uh, the revolutionary era, you know, there's there's a, a host of things that happen um, in the early 19th century from, you know, arguably uh, the w- Louisiana Territory purchase, right, in 1803, you could walk through the Napoleonic Wars, you can even think about U.S. expansion um, in Asia, trade and naval routes and all that sort of stuff in the 18- 30s and 1840s, you know, this was more about, you know, in Ch- China and Japan in the 1850s, more about, you know, the the push forward for the U.S. as a single nation, not with other allies or groups, but pursuing its own interests, sort of unfettered, um, you know, think even about the war with Mexico, uh, expansion in that way, uh, making sure that U.S. borders more or less were secure, uh, even if that, you know, kind of avaricious war to, to nab territory from a weakened Mexico was, was not exactly anything to glorify it was clearly a unilateralist orientation to expansion and to, to create security you know and then it, you see a kind of updating of these ideas in the late 19th century and the question then say in 1898 the war with Spain um, is about you know what does it look like to be a modern empire you know to, uh, there's a, a the phrase you know the US is a good enough England, which comes a little bit before that. In, um, and even so, that's about a kind of unilateral orientation to these new territories coming under American power, and there's a lot of open questions there, and, and imperialists and anti-imperialists don't know what to deal, how to deal with these questions of racism and racial hierarchy, which play a big role in this book um, on ideology. They don't know how to think about citizenship or immigration, also plays big roles in this book on ideology. Um, but you're exactly right to point to this World War II moment, right? So if World War I, the U.S. enters as an associate power uh, not as a formal ally, which I think is really important. I emphasize it all the time, and I think people don't really know what that means. But it means the U.S. U.S. troops weren't fighting under foreign flags, and the U.S. was not really functionally a full ally. And if you think about the peace that's concluded, the rejection of the Treaty of Versailles, you know, uh, not joining the League, also not pulling out U.S. troops until um, 1923, uh, you know, concluding a separate peace. Uh, all of this is of a piece with this longer-standing kind of unilateral orientation. Um, again, doesn't mean the U.S. doesn't enter. Wars, so it doesn't mean the U.S. doesn't make catastrophic uh, errors in terms of conflicts, um, or you know, uh, really advantageous, uh, self-aggrandizing moves of gaining territory. Right? You know, these can all be held there together. Um, but the World War II moment is this change in thinking about multilateralism, and and I think a, a key component of it is uh, historicist—that it's learning the lessons of World War I. Uh, it's a, or it's an argument about learning the lessons of World War One, as we both know, you know, thinking about my, my co-editor Elizabeth Borbart's book, A New Deal for the World, Stephen Wertheim's recent work, there's a number of books that, that talk about, you know, the post-war planning um, happening uh, in the midst of the war or even before the war for World War II, and I think so much of that was premised by liberal internationalists on an orientation to being a more genuine, multilateral power, even if it meant relinquishing some authority, Right? And, of course, we can go with how much of that there is. <laughs> the UN is in New York, um, most of the Bretton Woods happens in <clears throat> the US, et cetera. Right? Uh, the dollar, uh, we could go on and on uh, about the institutions that are constructed. So there's a lot of hegemonic power in US multilateralism, and I think, to my mind, uh, that joke aside, that's the key to it. You, you might even argue that US-led multilateralism is very much <laughs> unilateral. <laughs> um, now, we'd have to really be very specific to see when, where, and how that, that balance is best, best noted. But uh, what I'm saying in the chapter is that, hey, look at the debates that come after that moment, right, of World War II. So often the U.S. comes back around, U.S. political debates, and particularly citizens who reject um, particular forms of multilateral action. They come back to this bedrock set of ideas about unilateralism and say, hold on, let's have this debate about um about the nation's best interests, about you know, about thinking through uh, whether or not multilateralism is the antithesis of unilateralism, and if that is the case, then is that a good thing? Um, so uh, or to put it another way, uh, in this historical trajectory. And I mostly focused a lot of the piece, even though I, I focused my own work largely on the post-Civil War era early uh, in the 18th and 19th century. Is it, to put it um, more simply, uh, I say Walter McDougall somewhere in there and he says something, forgive my paraphrase, you know, the, the history of the 19th century is the history of the U.S. thinking that unilateralism works. Um, and then I would argue that that bedrock then becomes foundational for all the rest of the foreign policy apparatus that that is built up uh, and premised on multilateralism, but it's still there, uh, you might say, at the founda- that foundational level um, as a place to come back to, um, to check assumptions and core ideas. And that's where it fits with ideology, which is really about you know, making a complex world uh, more finite, uh, organizing your concrete ideas, uh, your assumptions, your, your sense of, of deep principles, um, and then deploying them towards some ends, like making the complex uh, more, Clear um, and and in that clarifying prism, you know, things like uh, unilateralism can be quite helpful in ways that multilateralism sometimes seem too complex. And this is where you get to the level of political rhetoric. How do you convince people that a certain cause for action is useful? And that's why I began with this question of, you know, was the unilateralism of the Trump administration so different? Um, and, and you know, my argument there is that no, it's not so different, frankly. Um, But the rhetoric they use uh, was both more persuasive to certain subsets of the U.S. and far more alarming to others who were saying, hey, you know, we're actually a multilateral country and we believe in these kinds of
0: principles. Is there something about the development of American society, uh, American politics, American culture that has, you know, pushed uh you know important segments of the United States to be really enthralled with this idea of unilateralism as a as a core ideology in the creation of American foreign policy? You know, is there some sort of connection here with American exceptionalism or Americans' ideas about the creation of the American Republic? Um or are we real or are Americans really not all that different from from people in, in other countries who you know are are crafting their own foreign policies.
1: Well, I'm always of the mind to say Americans aren't that different from other countries and to be a comparativist there. Um, But I think I would say that American unilateralism um, historically has been grounded in uh, a kind of exceptionalism. Um, And one of the things that we find in a lot of the ideologies uh, in U.S. foreign relations in the book is that exceptionalism um, is is taken as a kind of core assumption, uh, sometimes very much uninterrogated. And so I think that that's certainly true. Uh, for unilateralism, and I think you know, in, the, in recent years, as uh, is that's is that part of your question, you know, this this if we attempt to historicize the unilateral shift of the Trump administration, you know, I think one of the things we see is that these America first kind of nationalist unilateralist positions um, fit with a whole long set of policies that go pretty far back, and so that shift isn't isn't new. Uh, or, or the current that current move taps into things that are that are much more longstanding. Um, that I would I would add, and I don't know how much I say this in the chapter, to be honest. I, I think that some, uh, cosmopolitanism and pluralism change the mix of how unilateralism was deployed in the U.S. And so I would date that in some ways to the, to the rise of pluralist ideas that Horace Kalin, Randolph Bourne in the progressive era, um, that, that as lots more immigrants come into the country and the kind of melting pot ideal was debated and cultural values uh, are being heralded um, as, as better off distinct than melted into some homogenized whole, a kind of unilateralism that coalesced around nativism um, becomes a much more potent stream in American political thought and rhetoric. It was there before, but I think it wasn't as under threat. The unilateralism of the 19th century, to be very broad and generalized, was often one of a weak nation trying to to deal with security concerns and grow. Uh, And by the 20th century, you're beginning to see a much stronger commercial, cultural and military power, um, then debate whether or not uh, what what the mix of people within it should look like uh, and what that meant for the future of the nation. And so some groups were more embattled. Um, it's, It's a pretty obvious observation. But I think it's it's actually perhaps also profound in that it helps explain elements of America first, not just in 2016, but in 1940 and 41 in some ways, um, and arguably the America first of, the, of groups like in the Klan um, in the 60s and the civil rights movement.
0: It's sort of going off from from thinking about the idea of American first, which you know it's over like the course of the Trump presidency. It was always sort of fascinating to me, like how scholars, you know, historians, political scientists, you know, were coming back, political theorists were coming and say, you know, America first is not right, like something that Trump invented, even though one. Might think that he had, right? There's this really long, um, problematic, complicated history of this idea, you know, thinking about like the America First Committee uh, during World War II, you know, those who were opposed to US involvement uh, in the overseas conflict or, you know, the America First ideologies of the Klan. You know, like you watch the movie Black Klansmen and you see the Klansmen like, you know, toasting America First, which was supposed to be like this really, you know, jarring moment because that movie comes out right in the middle of the Trump administration. But sort of thinking about, um, which I think you were sort of starting to to get to in some sense, think and and you talk about this in the chapter, uh the relationship between the idea of unilateralism and the one of isolationism, um which is a term that has been talked about, um you know, has entered the discourse a lot again, um you know, in large part because of the Trump administration's foreign policy, um you know, how do you? Because I saw other scholars have talked about this relationship, but I think that you sort of unpack it in a way that is somewhat different from the way that other scholars have, have taught about it. Because, you know, it's the idea, right, of like eschewing, you know, foreign commitments, but mainly, be, you know, for example, the way that Robert Taft thinks about it, um, but that's because it would entangle us in other people's um Uh, Other people's conflicts or other people's issues in a way that he felt that the United States shouldn't be getting involved in them.
1: Yeah, very much. I mean, I think there. One of the things I really wanted to do in the chapter was to, to connect multilateralism, unilateralism, and isolationism, and I and I do that. Uh, and I think a little bit with the reader, I hope, um, kind of asking questions, sort of of um, the isolationist strands of thought, which I which I've written a, a few essays on, um, and the relationship between unilateralism and isolationism. You know, one of the things that um, so I, I I put out the uh, the phrase that I take from Taft, but you see it in other places too the doctrine of the free hand and we often, you know, if you're if you're just quickly hearing that, you probably think, oh, laissez faire economics. But actually, the free hand was about autonomy and sovereignty, and and that the U.S. Uh, in the in the post World War II era should be prizing its sovereignty and autonomy more. Um, so for someone like Taft, the lessons of World War One and World War Two are that the U.S. probably shouldn't be sucked into power politics in the world system uh, and should probably pursue its own course. So for instance, he's arguing um, and, and almost wins the Republican nomination in 1952. He's arguing for you know, much smaller U.S. military footprint, you know, next to no Marshall Plan. Um, don't, don't ramp up uh, you know, aid to Europe in anywhere near those, the shape or size that we know of. And, and we, we now think of it as uh, almost universally positive in the sense that it helped grow the world system and economies and standards of living and all that kind of thing. Um, his argument was the U.S. would do a lot better if it devoted those resources at home. Um, you know, and, and that's a very persuasive kind of take and it fits quite neatly with the sort of isolationist positioning, you know, as I've diagnosed it, um, which is to say, yeah, sure. You know, it's, although the phrase isolationism has usually been opposed, you know, frequently been used by opponents, right? It's a slur and it's an epithet. Um, if you unpack the ideas, you know, it's about the attitudes and policies of people who, who, uh, want to pursue a kind of adherence continued adherence in other eras um, to what they conceive of or, or assume to have been key elements of a successful foreign policy in the earlier era. And, and in particular, what that entailed was things like avoiding political and military commitments um, or alliances with foreign powers, especially Europe. Right. So it had a hemispheric carve out, which I think is really important to understand U.S. foreign relations and, and this kind of thinking. Um, and that it had this kind of unilateralist bent um, as one of the key components there. So you have a kind of several main positions uh, within the isolationist uh, Sort of um, intellectual constellation. I I often think of this best as understood as sort of in a constellation of ideas. There's these main points, Um, and uh, and and in most of the main points of isolationism, kind of global uh, diplomatic commitments should be unilateral. Uh, maybe not in every case, uh, and there's some room for ad hocery, um, t- but but going it alone makes the most sense um, is, is a core set of commitments in this this sort of ideological sphere, um, and you know again this is again a very basic point, but. It shouldn't surprise us that that comes roaring back periodically, and you can point to moments of this, right? The end of the Cold War is another moment. Um, there's a, a great new book out by um, Nicole Hemmer, uh, on Partisans, about Pat Buchanan. You know, one of his huge appeals is about this sort of is a kind of let's go it alone now. You know, instead of a unipolar world, it's just the U.S. and let's stop with the polls, right? <laughs> and let's limit who comes into the U.S. And it's you know it's a, it's a white nationalist position. It's a, you know xenophobic in many ways, um, but it shouldn't surprise us that it's. It's very appealing. You know, I think it's when there's big crises, uh, you know, the Eisenhower's version of multilateral U.S.-led global engagement was was pretty popular, um, but the Korean War was very unpopular, and people like Taft, you know, uh, did a good job of opposing it, saying this is the kind of thing that's going to get us into a lot more trouble. Why are we doing this?
0: Right. Yeah, I, that, I, that's, that was a really um, good point, that bringing up uh Nicole Hammer's new book, Partisans, you know, when I was, she just had a piece in the New York Times sort of talking about some of the themes of the book. Um, And it was striking, like how many similarities uh, there were between uh, someone like him, uh, you know, Buchanan and and the movement around him and then thinking about uh, Donald Trump and and also, you know, Ross Perot, who was who was running in 1992, right, as a a third party candidate also talked a lot about these things, too, about, you know. uh, you know, saying, let's get rid of, you know, the, the unipolar world, you know, let's get rid of the polls. It's just the United States. Let's focus again on the United States. Um, you know, we don't need to be dealing with other countries. We need to limit the amount. And, you know, he got like, what was it like 18% of the vote in, you know, the popular vote in 1992? In like it was a really, really popular position. I think a lot of people, you know, sort of laugh at this kind of thing, right? But it was really attractive to a lot of people. Yeah, and way more so, you
1: know, I think it's you laugh at your peril, right, because it, these, are very, these are obviously very attractive ideas that lots of people um, find merit in, and that can lead to p- positive as well as negative outcomes, right? More balancing within the U.S. Um, can lead to things that lots of us want. You know, I mean, uh, one of the examples that I've often given when I've given talks on isolationism and unilateralism is to say, you know, that it, we know that this is a false quid pro quo, but it's there. Uh, the burn rate per month uh, in the Iraq war in the first four years was roughly the same as universal health care in the u s now it's not like the u s Congress was going to pass universal health care uh, in the early 2000s but you know if you think about how much these conflicts abroad cost the us or multilateral kinds of commitments might cost the u s um, there's a clear appeal to some of these domestic things that actually cut across political the political spectrum um, so you know it, it's it shouldn't surprise us that that this is a really potent set of ideas and the other thing you know this is speculation on my part but a couple of the chapters in the book um touch on this you know these moments of rupture and crisis over historical time really help to illuminate the ideologies at work uh, or, that are under contest that are under pressure right that are debated um so like 1992 is a good moment to see that it's the cold war Seemingly over. You've got a recession. You're coming out of the Gulf War. You know, is this a new world order situation? You know, the the George H. W. Bush kind of orientation of a sort of multilateralism meets a sort of unilateralism, right? The unipolar moment. Um, or should something else uh, take precedence there? You could look to 4041 if we're just doing kind of America first kinds of moments. But you could also look to, you know, the Civil War, the 1840s and 1850s. Um, You know, and the ideologies that are also at play in those moments are really salient. Um, So dare I, you know, introduce another one, but from the book, and one of the things you see, you know, a little bit uh, sub Rosa in my chapter, um, are arguments about civilization. Um, that, that very often um, this is about civilization, uh, the way American policymakers and citizens and others think about their place in in this as a kind of Anglo-Saxon or Western civilization, um, and then about the relationship between civilizations, not in some necessarily hunting Huntingtonian sort of clash of civilizations way, but sometimes in that perspective, right? And this can have a racial hierarchical component, it can have an economic component or technological. Um, so those, those dimensions, of, of ideologies related to civilization were a surprising finding in the book. And they have a kind of fit with these moments of debate, like 1992, right? Coming out of that, what's the new world order going to look like? And should it be you know, more the vision of a Perot or a Buchanan of, of a U.S. minding its own business and thriving on its own terms? Or is it a U.S.-led world where the U.S. is spending precious resources um, to help others and, th- and thereby, supposedly, uh, they would question, uh, help themselves?
0: Yeah, I'd I'd like to talk a little bit more about this idea of the ideologies of civilization because you know that was in my own research um, when about Henry Stimson and the War Department during World War II. You know, in the 1930s, in between the time when he's Secretary of State and then he comes back as Secretary of War as as France is collapsing after the Nazis invade, in in the spring of 1940, one of the underpinnings of um, a lot of his foreign policy rhetoric. Um indeed I think over his over his long foreign policy career was this idea of Western civilization and this idea of like the progress of Western civilization. but the way that he sort of interpreted the fascist and right- wing militarist threat emanating from Germany, Italy, and Japan was that they were posing um sort of this internal unprecedented threat to the western civilization it was almost it wasn't like an external threat but it was it was coming from within and that that was even more um something that had to be defeated because it, it basically um it, it, once it becomes visible, it's already too late. Like we, we the, the ship has sailed and, and it becomes that much more, um, difficult to to root it out and and destroy it and of course you know he, he winds up being quite prophetic even though no one is really listening to him in the 30s um, because then you know the Nazis and and the Japanese become so powerful uh, you know by the early 1940s and and, and Italy to a lesser extent um, that you know it takes some massive world war to, to defeat these um, totalitarian powers so I was wondering if we could talk about um the through lines of this idea of civilization as an ideology in U.S. foreign policy. I mean, that's something that you said was one of the surprising findings of the book.
1: Yeah, I, we didn't expect to hear it in so many chapters and see it in so many sort of historical moments. And I think you're pointing out a, a great way, way to understand sort of threats from within and threats from without. Um, you know, there's a terrific chapter. I think it's the second one in the book um, by Ben Coates, Benjamin Coates, on American presidents and the ideology of civilization. And that's the one that confronts this most directly. But you see this in a number of other contexts throughout the book. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that Coates does is is talk about civilization as kind of a capacious container for empire as well. Um, and so how, how presidents have used ideology of civilization to advance their varied visions of empire from sort of Jefferson's, um, you know, Republican empire, empire of democracy, um, to, to more, you know... Uh, more overt, direct kinds of, um, civilizational projects to advance empire through territorial acquisition. Uh, not that that wasn't Jeffersonian as well. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, one of the things that we see in the civilizational arguments in, in ideological, uh, terms in foreign relations, um, are, uh, claims about, um, racial hierarchies, uh, uh claims about, um, uh, and what counts as an American, which is something we've hit on before, so immigration is deeply implicated there. Um, It also suggests uh, different kinds of visions of um, singular versus plural. Are there multiple civilizations at work um, in the U.S. and around the world? Uh, and how the U.S. might be rooted in antiquity. So if you think about the founding moments of, you know, uh, basing American democracy on ideas about, you know, ancient Rome and Greece and early democracies, but updating that through kind of enlightenment principles, um, which civilization or civilizations does the U.S. belong to um, is part of that contest over questions of civilization. Um, You know, the... uh, I think one other element that we find in pushing this through the whole uh, sway of U.S. history, um, it helps to locate that analysis sort of within modernity. So once you get to more modern periods and you look at civilization and political rhetoric, that's where you really see it operationalized. And that's kind of what Coates suggests. And that's maybe your example there, too. after World War One, you know, presidents talk a lot more about defending civilization, uh, and they're not as invested in promoting it, right? So they're, you know, it's not this project of civilizing. It's about a defense of civilization. And frankly, back around again, and, you know, I didn't expect that we'd do this, but if you think about the more recent presidencies, and particularly the Trump administration, his version of civilization a very narrow one, very Western, you know, very Anglo-Saxon, if if you will, um, was not about pro- promoting, but it was very much about defense, right? It was very reactive, under threat kind of thing. Whereas if you think about the earlier 18th, 19th century version, it's about advancing a kind of maybe even multiple civilizations approach to this, um, and that seemed to be a divide that I hadn't thought much about. And um, this speculative chapter and some of the other chapters, sort you of know, flesh out a bit.
0: Yeah, no, that is really interesting thinking thinking about the, the different ways that the idea of civilization is deployed, um, depending on the context in which they're being talked about, which seems like an obvious point, but it really plays out in, in really different ways. So, you know, in times of crisis, the idea of defending civilization, sort of the U.S. being in this position to, you know, take up that mantle, which is, I think, very much the way that Simpson had thought about it versus, you know, other times where, you know, things are maybe less turbulent and sort of this idea of promoting Western civilization. You know, as a as a form of ideology in which this is you know sort of a bastion of progress and and forward movement as opposed to you know other ideas of civilization which you know uh, various people within the United States thought as backwards or perhaps not as you know producing as many positive outcomes. I mean, you know, uh, not to talk about Stimson so much, but you know, in the earlier part of his career, especially when he was. Um, Right. Right. As the sort of debate over empire was taking place in the United States um, after the Spanish-American War, you know, he was talking, you know, quite privately because he was not uh, a well-known person at the time, but it was really illuminating of his later, you know, ideas about racial hierarchy, especially around the context of uh, uh, African-Americans serving in the military or Japanese-American internment um, that, you know, he was against absorbing the Philippines um, into the, the American polity um, because he thought Filipinos were, you know, um, not incapable of self-government and that, you know, there was, we shouldn't be infecting the body politic was the way that he talked about it, um, which was really fascinating given the fact that later in his career, he becomes the American governor of the Philippines yeah. and right. then, right. And say, right that, Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then it's like working with Filipinos on exactly this idea of like trying to give the colonial elites more authority over. Filipino internal affairs and sort of putting them in a position in which they could basically, you know, gain their independence, right? It was sort of this the, Philippine, the Philippines was basically right, a war department run protectorate um, at the, and and then uh, you know, or possession and we're going to put them on the road to self-government but they need, they need the white people to sort of teach them how to do it and this was very much how he and other many, many other Americans thought about it at the time and so, you know, that's like really fascinating, this idea of civilization playing out in a very different way there.
1: Yeah. And just to connect that, you know, to our previous points about unilateralism and multilateralism and the timing of that shift where the where, where people have begun to think that the U.S.'s default setting was more multilateral. Right. The, the as kind of ideas about Western civilization, you know, um, advance in political rhetoric in the U.S., how policymakers think, but also then how citizens, regular citizens think. And we see this in, in one of the chapters in particular, um, you know, they, they come to sort of like justify multilateral transatlantic uh, commitments and connections, right? So you get a kind of, well, if we're part of Western civilization, then it makes sense that the, the U.S. should be in a bind and collective security agreement, NATO. Right, 1949, um, and then you see this moving, and, and and Coates talks a little bit about this about you know American policymakers deploying this language, it's a little bit very Stimson-esque, actually, you know de- deploying this you know saying like the birth of Western civilization was on the banks of the Tiber or in Greece or or Iran as the fountain of Western civilization, or you know Re- uh, Reagan says Egypt's the a nation which creed uh, which cradled Western civilization in its arms, and people said similar things of Japan and Korea, and suddenly you've got you know Western civilization in Civilized nations, you know, being the, the necessary, you know, prere- prerequisite for all multilateral commitments. Hey, you're a civilized nation, uh, and defined as such, uh, you're part. We're a part of the we of the world. Um, and, and then, but what's the flip side of that? Decolonization, you know, is 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 discrediting civilization, right? It's saying that these kinds of hierarchies and this kinds of um, oppression and suppression um, are. Uh, endemic in this kind of vision of civilizational progress, and so you also see this pushback against some of this civilizational language, and and so then you, you What we don't see, what Coates notes and a couple of the other chapters notes as you move through the 20th century, you see a lot less of civiliz- civilizing missions. And you might see civilizational terms for, for a variety of things, but you don't see it in terms of so- Soviet threats in particular. Uh, but you do see it, and this is again connects us to our previous part of the conversation, you do see it internally you do see Americans thinking about their relationship to the world and a kind of crisis of American civilization. You know, are we, uh, you know, particularly conservatives, appropriately moral? Uh, appropriately you know, in favor of free enterprise. You know, uh, I'm thinking of the Ho- Hoover's arguments about liberty you know, against the New Deal and then all the way up through the US should be like Gibraltar and not, have, not be part of the Marshall Plan and not be in the Korean War. You know, so you see this kind of crisis of American civilization writ small, just this nation, um, at the same, v- virtually the same moment that you're seeing this expansion of ideas about Western civilization that eventually encompass even to some extent Japan and Korea in these big multilateral Cold War kinds of commitments. So it's really fascinating to see this in there. And you know, if you're not looking at attentive to one language and two ideas and ideologies, you're not going to quite find this in the sort of through line of U.S. foreign policy. You can find the policy debates, you can find some of these other elements, but focusing centrally on the lens of ideology really gives you some new vistas on U.S. foreign relations, I would argue
0: yeah no de- definitely um switching switching gears again just to to close out our conversation you got you and David start your introductory chapter you know thinking about uh, Barack obama uh, and and sort of his um ideology uh, of of almost anti-ideology which you know I think I think it's very much an ideology in and of itself um especially in his approach to to foreign policy and I was wondering if you could sort of Unpack that for our listeners a little bit and talk about the dangers of, you know, basically trying to sideline the idea of ideology in the creation of American foreign policy. Because I I do think that uh, this does trip up uh, President Obama personally and the Obama administration as they confront a lot of the problems that they um, were were looking at uh, during his presidency.
1: So one, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think you're right. And I was surprised as we wrote this, as we conceived this, we gathered all in Oregon in 2019 for a big international conference of many of the authors. Unfortunately, not everybody could be there, but many of them. Um, We hashed this out. We debated to some extent then, you know, what were the ideological blinders of the Obama administration? And then as David and I were writing this uh, and rewriting it, uh, it became more and more clear to us that we had to kind of call that out. So the the argument you heard uh, as Obama you know, ran for the presidency in two thousand eight and, and operationalized his you know National Security Council kind of philosophy was you know pra- quote unquote pragmatism over ideology. Um, now of course I would argue that pragmatism as a political philosophy. Is ideological or functions ideologically. So there's that, right? Uh, you know the William James's terms. You know what's the cash value of an idea? Uh, you know constantly provisional, always being updated. It's an intellectual tool. Uh, and that, but that did sound refreshing, right? So one of the things he said, you know, um, to put it crassly, uh, is you know, don't do stupid shit, right? So his, his argument was that that a kind of ideological commitment to nation building, a kind of grandiose Wilsonianism, um, had led to the to the very mistaken moves of the Bush administration after 9/11 uh, to the Forever Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and obviously those were not popular, uh, and he had voted against them, which is part of why he, you know, was able to, to um, move forward against Hillary Clinton um, and then win. Um, you know, but so, but taking a step back and thinking about the political philosophies that involved there, right, what he estimate, what his administration publicly argued uh, in terms of. Um, those deeper commitments was that material drivers were most important uh, and that having a kind of uh, grand strategy or set of uh, of national security strategies um, that were founded on specific core commitments that could be encapsulated in a concept or set of concepts behind, you know, don't do this, don't do that um, or do this uh, was wrong, was mistaken, was the kind of thing that led um, nation states and particularly the U.S. in various moments uh, awry. Right. Um, So he would point to things like containment, in fact, uh, that the containment had spun out such that you wind up in the Vietnam War. So let's not have that was what they said. Now, the problem with this non-ideological ideology uh, was that it did privilege ideological factors, uh, but it it led them to to say to to make the case that they weren't doing it. And so that, you know, when you look at one of the best examples here, and we were able to get it in just under the wire as we put the book to press, is Ukraine, is Russia. Right, so one of the things that we heard so much as the Obama administration, quote unquote, pivoted to Asia, was that um, you know Russia was a waning power. Um, their economic power was pre- you know premised on fossil fuels, which couldn't last forever, and, and were sub- su- subject to wild you know changes in value over time. Um, and their, their and their capacity for nuclear weapons uh, with a, with a slowly you know um, hollowing out military and so he thought that China was a much more important power in the in the world stage and in fact you know you can find all kinds of quotes from the Obama himself and, and members of the administration really pretty much dismissing uh, Russia. And then blindsided they're blindsided in 2014 when the Crimea is annexed uh, and they're, they're blindsided by the interventions of you know Russian special ops, uh, particularly you know intelligence operations you know messing with European elections in 2016, getting involved in the US one right They didn't know even how to talk about that. Um, and, and so the argument that David and I really make and we're not trying to hammer the Obama administration, but just to note this they, you know, ideological orientation to reject um, ideology fundamentally underscored their need for a guiding ideology. That that they dismissed too many factors um, uh, with their own you know preconceptions, and and that really uh, harmed policy planning in particular um, related to to Russia, uh, but also more broadly didn't allow the Obama administration. <laughs> to to develop something like a grand strategy or something bigger, right? And so, you know, there were all these arguments, does Obama have a a demi-doctrine? Is there a doctrine at all? And think about, you know, the arguments about Syria and a red line and not not pursuing that, you know, it looked very ad hoc. It looked like um, more like the caricatures of the JFK administration, like crisis management, you know. Um, and I think, you know, when we look in historical perspective, we'll see, you know, w- what what it looks like. But certainly, as, as we were putting this book to press and thinking about the ideologies that had guided recent administrations, eschewing ideology uh, really doesn't play well. Um, doesn't and, and in particular because you know we have ideologies at work and so we might as well interrogate them um, and and put all those presuppositions on the table and not pretend that that they're not there uh, and another element of that that I think is important is you know that that this then um, infected and inflected the dismissive way that the administration t- talked about the so-called blob, right, the foreign policy establishment. And it isn't to say that there aren't many problems of foreign policy groupthink in the U.S. You and I could probably spend a whole nother session just talking about those problems. Uh, but that said, you know, dismissing those folks who have area expertise, you know, and, and it's not like they dismissed them out of hand entirely, but, but that kind of thinking goes hand in hand with a kind of dis... Dismissive attitude towards more broadly um, the road of, r- roads of ideology in shaping the path forward for foreign policy.
0: Yeah. Now, yeah, when you were talking about all the you know quotes that you know Obama or his um, his team were. You know making during his presidency about dismissing Russia it just made me think of perhaps the most well-known one which is the third presidential debate between him and Mitt Romney in the 2012 election in which you know he's basically like uh, to- you know tormenting Romney for you know calling Russia like America's biggest geopolitical foe and you know I then you know a couple of years later especially with all of the things that are happening in Ukraine um you know after the 2014 uh, illegal annexation of Crimea. You know Romney's looking. You know, kind of like prophetic. You know, in a way that um, you know made Obama, I think, look kind of silly um, even though I don't think Romney had any like specific you know expert geopolitical insight but it definitely was not uh, a good look uh, for the Obama administration only a couple of years after uh, you know Obama was you know making fun of of Romney for that but um
1: yeah absolutely uh, and and it, you know it it fits with other other permutations of that the assad regime in Syria underestimating their capacity to deal with you know the civil war and insurgency and then being backed by Russia that didn't Seem to mean as much to the Obama administration as it probably ought to have. Uh, you know, and there's there's a number of other factors like this that I think, you know, have um, have profound ideological dimensions. And yet they were trying very actively to suggest that they weren't that, right? That they were being driven by material drivers. You know, I mean, this is almost a Marxist orientation. This is certainly a very, a new left, right? Economic drivers are most important in the world and ideas and ideologies don't matter as much and they're harder to track and therefore, you know, arguably less important but if you think about what what we've heard Putin say in recent you know months about his sort of vision for a grand Rus, you know Imperial ruse you know that goes back to some not even actually historically grounded era it's very much this this sort of ideological orientation to some something that, that that's you know pie in the sky um, and willing to sacrifice all kinds of things you know that that seem fundamentally irrational right um, but but these are the sorts of things that when you look at other ideologies as they've operated in foreign for instance, you know, mission, mission ideology, saving the world in one generation—those um, kinds of grand world-shaping orientations—are the things you need to take most seriously, I would argue.
0: Yeah, no, a- absolutely, and I think that's that really brings us full circle to where we started the conversation, talking about you know, ideological versus material drivers, and and how you should ignore ideological um, underpinnings at your own peril. So. Thank you so much, Chris, for for coming on. I thought this was a wonderful conversation. Uh, The book is Ideology in U.S. Foreign Relations, New Histories. It was just released uh, August 2022 with Columbia University Press, co-edited by Chris Nichols, who I was just speaking with, and David Milne. So thanks very much, Chris, for coming on. And uh, to our listeners, thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you again soon. All right. Great. Thanks so much for having me on.